that this might actually be <laughs> might actually be for the podcast. I so I did run a test this time to make sure I I don't mess up the recording again. <laughs> 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 and I so I set myself a timer, half an hour, and uh, recorded myself um, just you know as I was working. And of course, I I can set a timer and immediately forget about it. So every Monday I do um, system maintenance and stuff, and I set a three or five minute timer for each machine to check it after it's been rebooted. Right. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't believe how often that timer goes off. And I think, what's that about? Yeah. What, what on earth do I need to do? I have, I like within three minutes, I've, I forget what this timer was about. You know, I'm not in the kitchen, so there's nothing obvious heating up or like, you know, something that needs attention. And I, I just don't understand what's going on. Well, welcome everybody to the uh, Over 50s uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it started sooner than that, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not actually quite fifty yet. I'm. I'm forty nine. Oh, all so. right, all right. Well, you've you've segmented us nicely there. <laughs> um, so anyway, you can imagine how long it took for me to completely forget about this recording. And then when the timer went off, I stared at the at the watch. And then, but it was, because it was thirty minutes, I, that I I made the connection. Thirty minutes was weirdly very unusual time for a timer. And then, ah, oh, right, yeah, you had this recording running. What you haven't mentioned is why you were doing this. Well, do we really need to go into this? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's let's talk about it. We had a bit of a week last week. <laughs> um, we had a serious uh, issue with the package index itself, um, and we also had a podcast recording last week. And uh, when I received uh, Sven's audio file, uh, it was about three quarters missing with just complete silence, and there must have been maybe a loose connection or or something like that from uh, from uh, Sven's microphone. And so I asked him to do some testing, and that was that was his half an hour microphone record on the uh, that he was just referring yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. And this actually ties nicely back to to the the remainder of my story because when I was listening back to this I'm, I'm still working on this problem right we've I'm still picking up the pieces from what went wrong last week <laughs> I listened back and there are these there are these sighs in the recording like oh why is this not working <laughs> I completely forgot the microphone it is hilarious to listen back to this <laughs> someone suffering at their desk <laughs> <laughs> in agony over stuff. Oh God, I'm I'm just glad this isn't running the whole time. <laughs> well, and uh, so that's the thing. That's like we are actually surrounded in in modern life by tens of microphones. I I, could, yes. I don't know how many microphones there are in my house, but there are a lot. Yeah, I wonder how many are live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to hear all the exasperation that I say throughout a, an average day. Uh <laughs> I'm actually I've becoming more conscious of this because I work here with the window wide open. I can often hear the neighbors talking two floors down on, on their balcony. I've I've started reining myself in a bit because I do sometimes when stuff doesn't go right, I, I do tend to curse a bit and I thought I need to dial it back. <laughs> That's really interesting. I can I, I hear my neighbor do it through the wall. <laughs> Sometimes it needs to be done. It's like hitting return harder has an effect for for sure. Um, yeah, should we should we briefly talk about what actually happened? Yeah, so let's talk about the problem. Yeah, so in broad strokes, we released an update last week, early last week. Um, I think it was Monday afternoon, um, and the repercussions only became obvious later that evening. 
And long story short, what happened, we lost about half of our versions. And a version in our system is a Git reference, essentially. So we have one uh, branch that we're tracking, the main branch, default branch of a repository. And then we're tracking a reference, a version for every release that package has. And you can imagine there's a number of them. We have a bit over 6,000 packages and we have 100,000 versions that we're tracking in the index. And we lost, I think, like 45,000 before um, we noticed what was happening and why it was happening and, and pulled the plug. And the problem was the, there was a delay for us to notice, a significant delay due to how the bug manifested itself between us actually having a chance to see that we lost the revisions. Yeah. Without going into like real detail about it, it's 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 kind of a complicated um, uh, situation where it wasn't. It, we have these analysis cycles where we'll run past all the packages looking for changes and then back around again looking for changes and back around again. And they take about is it about three hours that it takes to to run past that? Last time I checked, something yeah. like that. One one complete cycle takes around three hours and then it goes back to the start. Right. Mm -hmm. And the bug only manifested in the second set of analysis after this yeah. bad release was deployed. And so you're in that worst of all situations where the release gets deployed, everything seems fine, and then at some point later, everything goes to, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the, the thing is, I, I stopped stuff when I initially saw the problem, and then I rolled back, and I didn't see a change, and... I didn't see the change because the, the problem didn't manifest itself immediately. And then I rolled forward again. And that that cost us revisions um, because had I stopped there and, and given that more time, um, that, that would have saved us. But, you know, long story short, we lost the revisions. That's actually not the end of the world. The revisions come back quickly. Um, and within one analysis cycle, we're, we're all back on the revisions. What we also lost, unfortunately, were all the bills that we have attached to a, a version. And those are the compatibility builds that we run, that we kick off for each package across all the platforms and all the Swift um, versions that we're tracking, which is, I think, 30-ish um, per per um, version. 32, I think, um, yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine that's a lot of builds that we now have to catch up on. And we're actually still in the process, uh, tail end of the process. Uh, we decided last week not to... to replay a backup we do run backups of the database but that was also that was also unfortunate because we were so deep in trying to figure out what was going wrong we didn't actually or i didn't actually think through how how complex a database um rollback is and it's actually a lot easier than i thought at the time i did not stop and think uh, that's that's a bit unfortunate because we we could have very easily played that database back and uh, have avoided doing the builds. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like in these in these situations where you have to make a decision and you make that decision under pressure and while the world is falling around you, um, it's it's sometimes difficult to make the best decision yeah. in those situations. Uh, I I mean the other thing that happened last week completely outside of this tech stuff is I, I played a, a paddle game. Paddle is a kind of a tennis game they play here in, in the south of France. And um, I I hurt my back. I got, um, did you call it lumbago in uh, in English? Sure, yeah. Lumbago in, in French, yeah. And uh, I, was, I was completely wrecked. I couldn't move. I couldn't even sit the first couple of days <laughs> since Wednesday afternoon. That certainly didn't help. And it's really, really hard to, to think straight in these in these circumstances. So last week I 
I deployed that release that nuked half of our versions. I ruined our, <laughs> our podcast recording. <laughs> I ruined my back. <laughs> I hope this week's going to go better. <laughs> but apart from that, how was the rest of the play? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, just going great. It's just going great. <laughs> so in slightly more positive news, um, we have also been working on, so I think we mentioned this uh, a few months ago, actually, we, that we were putting in a pull request on the Swift.org website repository to add a packages page on that site to start to bring in some of um, the Swift package index data onto the Swift website to help kind of showcase and uh, expand the package ecosystem and, and what we what what people see on that site. So we're getting a little bit closer now to um, to merging that. And I thought it might just be interesting to run through how we get the data mm -hmm. into that page. Um, and there's the technical side of it, which is physically or not physically, but you know, <laughs> technically, how do we how do we um, query the database, query the API, put together the right file, submit it as a pull request, and that will be the technical side of updating it. But actually, that's not very interesting. The more interesting bit, I think, is how do we pick the packages that are on that page? So, if you haven't seen uh, the page demo yet. We, we did link to it last time, but we'll pop an, uh, a link in the show notes again to the, uh, we have a staging site for it set up. And that staging site has a little bit of a preamble about, you know, what packages are and what the Swift package index is and that kind of thing. But then it quite quickly goes into a set of lists of packages. And some of those lists come straight from the package index uh, database. So for example, there are categories in there. So it's, there's a list of six networking packages and six packages that might help with testing and that kind of thing. Those, the sources of that are fairly um, straightforward in terms of that's just the, the top six search results that come off the Swift Package Index uh, site. So if you did that same search on uh, the Package Index, you'd get the same six packages that as we're currently going to be showing on Swift.org. Um, then we have a couple of lists that are things like, for example, I think one of them at the moment is packages that have macros in them to kind of highlight macros are a new feature in Swift 5.9. And so let's highlight some packages that use that feature on Swift.org so that people can see them. But again, the results that come in are just, if you did that search on Swift Package Index, it would be in exactly that order. But actually the, the, the top category on the list is probably, I think, the most interesting one. And it's called, or we've called it the Community Showcase. Mm -hmm. And this is a manually create curated uh, set of packages. Um, and I think it's interesting to talk about where that manual curation happens, how it will happen going forward, who's responsible for it, that kind of thing. Um, we're about to make a post on the Swift forums about this. So this is slightly premature, but I think it's um, it's worth talking about here too. So the whole idea behind the community showcase is that it shouldn't try and be like a best of the best packages or something like that, but whatever packages are being discussed 
in the community. So whether that be on a podcast like this, for example, where we're going to talk about some community packages later, or any other podcast from the community, or blogs or newsletters or something like that. So what packages are being highlighted? What packages are people talking about? Um, and the only rule we've made actually is that nomination of a package to go in this showcase should be you should nominate somebody else's package rather than your own so for example when we do the community um packages at the end of this podcast we don't link to our own packages uh we talk about other people's packages and other podcasts and newsletters and things like that are also doing that so that's the rough criteria and we will collect nominations from people who run that kind of you know, podcasts and blogs and things like that via the Swift forums. Um, but then, of course, those nominations have to go through and six of those, let's say there are more than six nominations, we have to, somebody has to make a choice of, you know, which actual packages go onto that page. And this is where the Swift website workgroup initially comes in. So I'm a member of the Swift website workgroup and we, we do various uh, bits of development and try to push the Swift website forward a little bit. And we do several bits of work towards kind of making the Swift website a little bit better and um, uh, kind of pushing things forward in terms of, of uh, the content on Swift.org. But also the Swift website work group is going to be the group which is responsible for initially curating uh, which of these community packages make it onto this page. Um, and this is going to happen on a fairly regular schedule. So we're thinking it'll either be every two weeks or maybe every month that these get updated, something like that. Um, and so there'll be a series of kind of phases to it. We'll collect some nominations from people who run these community uh, resources, and then the work group will make a decision on which one goes in, and then we'll finally update the Swift website via the pull request that we talked about earlier. Um, and so, we hope that that is a reasonable way to um, to, to organize this. Um, it's certainly, um, we don't want to make the decisions. The Swift website work group is, you know, managed by Apple. And actually, the Swift website work group is only temporarily going to be uh, responsible for this. There was a, um, there was a blog post, um, I think, again, like a couple of months ago, where mm -hmm. um, the Swift project announced that there would be some new work groups coming. And one of those work groups is the ecosystem work group. And one of the things that that work group is going to be responsible for is the package ecosystem. And so I think the plan eventually will be to have that work group make this decision rather than the website work group. But what we were very keen for it not to be was us. We don't want to make this decision, do we? Yeah. I, I really liked what you said at the start that the this ecosystem category is not so much about the best package or, or quality as the metric, but um, what's interesting and what's being talked about. Because, and I think this is uh, sometimes reflected also in our choices where we pick stuff that's just interesting. Um, yeah. Because I think there's more than, than one reason to look at packages. It can be inspirational, it can be educational, it can be fun. Um, it can be something that someone who's learning the language or learning about packages is just trying. And I think all these should get some space. It shouldn't just be about, you know, what absolutely bulletproof, perfectly 
maintained package do I need for my networking? Of course, that's one of the reasons why you need a package index or package recommendations, but it's about more than that. I mean, a lot of this is educational. I, I look at packages that I know I won't have any use for, but that I just find interesting, you know, in the way they present themselves, how they do things, um, what their documentation look, looks like, um, the readme, that sort of stuff. It's often interesting aspects of the language that I don't know well, that I want to learn about a bit, um, or just, just to observe someone taking their first steps in publishing a package. That's also interesting and, and fun to see and, and you know, how, how that starts, because we've all started there, right? We've all had our our first package, our first pull request, something up. And, and uh, it can be really daunting and, and seeing that um, happen and, and maybe help it along a bit, um, you know, with with a pull request yourself, if you notice something, it can be really, really nice and welcoming. And and that's, you know, that's part of why we called it the showcase. Like it's not, yeah that, that yeah. word showcase is literally what this is. And we want to we want to highlight brand new packages there that maybe haven't had that kind of battle testing, but they may be interesting. Um, and and I think it's a a really, I think it's a really positive thing that Apple want to showcase that kind of package on yeah. the official website as well. And that shows that it's not just about like it's it's not all about like well you can't get on this page unless you absolutely make the best package there is because what does that even mean? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, but this is this is a this is a look at the ecosystem. This is you know the Swift six and a half thousand packages and something like that. But there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on inside that thousands of packages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the next thing that will happen with that is that we will make um, a post to the Swift forums, and the the purpose of that post is obviously to lay out our plans a little bit but also to ask for the primary purpose is to ask for feedback so if you have any feedback on this idea um nothing is too late yes we have a prototype up and we have been through like if you if you go to the pull request you'll see lots of reviews there and tweaks and we have been moving it forward but this is not it's i i think what we're the, the stage that, that i would consider this at is we'd be happy to merge this given no feedback comes from the community but that feedback from the community is absolutely within scope to make changes to what we're proposing yeah right we got any other news i don't think i have any other news um so should we do some packages um actually one thing we could briefly talk about um which was in our <laughs> messed up recording but that's uh, the first round of dependabot updates that we saw sure. against one of our projects um in in the swift package index so we mentioned this uh, three weeks ago now that there's a new feature on github if you have a swift project they now run a dependency check against your repository and i believe this is currently only happening if you have a package.resolved checked in because that's the underlying information they use to, to discover whether any of your packages that you're using as a dependency have any issues. And, and if, if that is the case, and that's, it's not even an opt-in that happens automatically, it will highlight this in a section on GitHub. Um, I'm not sure what the panel actually is. We'll add a link to the show notes. This actually happened to us. So one of our packages that we don't update frequently had some 
um, was running an, an old version of Swift Neo, which had some updates um, that fix CVEs, and th those were highlighted and alerted us to that fact. And then we ran a package update to update it to the latest version. So that's that's really nice. Um, again, we'll add a link to the show notes to show what that looks like. And I believe uh, package resolved being checked in is a requirement, but that's probably the case um, in most for most packages. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think it's really nice that this is on by default um, for yeah. Uh, for repositories that have that file. Um, I think you can actually go a step further if you want to, uh, and this is not on by default, but you can go in and say, also, please raise a pull request, and right, the yeah. Dependabot will, if it finds a vulnerability, it will then take your package.swift and package.resolve file and upgrade both of them, if necessary, to a version that no longer has that. So you can, you can have it... Um, literally open that pull request so all you have to do is merge uh that to to, to get the new uh, dependency in there um we take a slightly different i think we mentioned this again three weeks ago we take a slightly different approach to that in that we have a script that runs every week that says here are you out all of your out-of-date dependencies um so we're not going to have that automated dependable one on but we we do love this um this feature of uh, the notifications yeah yeah that's really great uh, okay, should we uh, should we do some packages? Do you want to kick us off, Sven? I shall do so. My first package, my first pick, is called Xebeautify by Twist. Um, I absolutely love this. We've been using Xebeautify for quite a while in the Swift package index itself, um, not only in the project. So what I should explain what it does. Xebeautify is a uh, executable, uh, command line executable, that you can pipe your... Xcode build and Swift build output and test runs through, and it beautifies the output. Um, you, you know, if you've seen what Xe test um, failures look like or build failures look like, it can get a bit messy. Xe beautify makes that nice on the command line. It even adds uh, ANSI colors, so you get nice colored output. Uh, works also in CI is is, is a nice output there. Mm -hmm. um, we've been using that for a while. Not only in our CI, we've We've also run the Xcode builds through Execute Beautify of our build output that we, the builds that we generate. So if you go to a package page and click through to the builds and then click on any of the Xcode builds, you know, like the iOS, watchOS, tvOS builds, that output there is, is run through Beautify to make it look nicer, make it more digestible because it can get really noisy. Now, um, a new feature they added in version 0.21, um, and I think now they're also they're even on 1.0.0. So if you go to the latest major version, you'll effectively have this. They added a new GitHub Actions renderer, which doesn't give you quite that ANSI colored output, but it generates an output that is picked up by GitHub to surface test errors in the GitHub Action UI, and that is really really nice because in the package index we have hundreds of tests and if there's a failure it's really hard to find them because we have our log output is, is thousands of lines so you have to scroll a lot to find the error what this does it it shows you the not only the error output um you know what what the failure was with the expected and actual values it also gives you a click through to the source of the test so you can read all the context around it um, and this is on the github action overview and it's it's really nice i think it also inlines into pull requests um, alongside the the code there 
Um, it's it's fantastic. I, I just absolutely love it because in the past, I really dreaded when there was a CI failure. I often just ran, reran the tests locally because I I couldn't be bothered scrolling through thousands of lines of tests. I thought I went, I'm just going to get a coffee, run the tests and see what's happening. And and now it's it's just all there. You you can click through and, and see the results straight away. Absolutely brilliant. I, I love this feature. I think it's um it's such a time saver. I I was in exactly the same boat as you. If if I got a CI test, I I would my first port of call would be to run the tests locally again. And only if the test passed locally would I start to look through that log file. First protocol was to just shout profanities <laughs> and run it locally. That's right, yeah. Shout shout so my neighbor could hear. That's right. Um <laughs> Uh, so yes, it's it's a it's a great uh, step forward for it, and um, uh, I think I, I'm just happy that we've we have this on our project now. It's, uh, it's saving time already. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, my first package is uh, by Vikram Kriplani, and it's Swift UI Shimmer. Um, so this is a bit of a package that uh, a package that has a little bit of nostalgia to it uh, but also is is still very much useful today um do you remember when the original iphone came out um and it had no passcode on the original iphone <laughs> because why, why would you possibly need to protect yeah i know it's it's <sighs> wild that they didn't have a passcode on it <laughs> um because there was nothing to protect right it had it had almost no information on it and we lived it was a different time Sven it was a different Absolutely. time I did lose an iPhone I lost an original iPhone without any passcode and stuff I changed some I mean obviously changed my my um I'm not even sure was it even iCloud at the time my password but no no iCloud it's unimaginable these days <laughs> yeah um anyway so what it did have instead of a passcode was a beautiful bit of UI where it said slide to unlock and the text of the slide to unlock there was a kind of shimmer effect that went from left to right across the text of a little at an angle like as if the light was catching yeah. uh, catching it and and it was to it was to indicate because don't forget touch screens were were yes. fairly uh, primitive yeah. at the time yeah. uh you know this was to encourage you to interact with that element and it was a lovely bit of UI i think it, one of the just just the one of the most beautiful bits of the first iPhone. Yes. Um, so SwiftUI Shimmer is a package that brings that to all of the modern platforms. It's actually been around uh, for a couple of years now. Um, but the reason it caught my eye this week was because um, you can add a shimmering slide to unlock uh, screen on your Vision OS app with this uh, <laughs> with this SwiftUI modifier in this package. And I think we should we should encourage everybody to add slide to unlock to their Vision OS app, and then you slide <laughs> across it with your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You just look from left nice. to right, and uh, and the application <laughs> unlocks. Actually, I I don't know. Um, this is a this is a little potential rabbit hole that we're going down here, but I don't know how. Um, how does Vision OS do the um, authentication? How do you? Do, it must have a passcode or lock or something. Is there is there a biometric? No, it doesn't. It it scan it scans your iris. I think uh, it's um, it scans yeah, your iris. Okay, uh, I'm not sure what the name is. There's there's a marketing name for it. Uh, it's not. It's not eye lock or something, but it is, it is something related to the eye. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it does a, an iris scan. Unless, unless I'm fantasizing now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. 
I'm sure I knew at one point, but I've already forgotten. So we'll have to see when it, when the device gets here. Anyway, um, that's um, SwiftUI Shimmer by Vikram Kripalani. Kripalani. Nice. Really nice. I, I love that. It was so, so powerful in, in, in what it communicated and how well it did that. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. I definitely lost something there. There were, there were several bits of, of breakthrough UI with that first, um, yeah. first iPhone drop. It, it, it's, it's a very rare event that you can have something that, that pushes UI forward so far in one, in, in one moment. What there was, there was a time before the iPhone and there was a time after the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. Scrolling definitely is, you know, how it continues when you, when you flick it yeah. and, and the rubber banding at the edges and, and that, I think those are the, mm-hmm. the key, the key things, the key inventions around these touch screens that, that were transformative. Well, and the other thing was multi-touch. That I that really was so powerful. I I watched a kid like in the early days of the iPhone, a, a toddler pick up an iPhone, looking at at pictures and pinching and zooming naturally. That tells you everything you need to know about that interaction. That it works. If 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 a child can pick it up and just naturally do it, it was so that was astounding to watch that happen. Watch that observe that interaction. Back to the over fifties uh, podcast. I'm I'm actually quite disappointed when I pick up a physical piece of paper <laughs> and I can't do it on that because because <laughs> I need it. All <laughs> oh, right, right. This does not zoom. Yeah. Uh, okay. Exactly. Nothing zooms. <laughs> My next package is called Swift Prompt by Michael O'Brien and Michael O'Brien. I'm 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 actually going to make that same joke as as last week because it's new to all the others, but not today. We have this nice little bug on our website where we spell out the author name twice, and that's because I presume that author has commits with different email addresses, and we don't uh, at the moment deduplicate them. Um, so actually, we we figured out. We figured out what it was, isn't it? Um, th- th- oh, two, right, right. The two different. Oh, yes, I figured yeah. it out on the podcast. So there's the apostrophe exactly. <laughs> we one did. Is we a... figured out live <laughs> on our failed recording. Yes. Well, we had some successes, but uh, they just never see the light of day. <laughs> right. Um, so the package is a command line interface package for text input and option picker prompts, and it's absolutely beautiful. You need to look at the README of the package, um, what that looks like. I, I just want to run off and write a command line tool that, that uses it. It looks really nice. It's using these um, Unicode, um, what do you call them, glyphs. Mm-hmm. There's a little a screencast on the, um, on the README yep. to create menus that you, you know, can arrow through and has a password prompt as well where it hides your input. Uh, absolutely beautiful. It, it's if you have any sort of input that you're capturing for a script, use this. It's it looks really fantastic. Um, yeah, it's a small little package. That's what it does. It apparently does it really well. Uh, it's called Swift Prompt and is by Michael O'Brien. So there's always a um, there's always a, a a decision to make with this kind of um, situation where you're writing a command line tool. You need some input, and one way is to go down the pass everything in as oh, an yes. argument, um, which is, uh, you know, the Swift argument parser uh, way to do it. And this is a nice alternative to that, where you might pass some things as arguments, but but then you want to have some interactivity. So maybe you want to make the user make a choice between 
a few known options or maybe that one choice depends on another choice and you that you know that's hard to how to get right with uh, just purely arguments and so i can see good uses for this where for, for slightly more complex uh, command line tools yeah yeah absolutely or you know because if you pass stuff in through the command line it is visible you know there's there's uh, ways that can be seen uh, if you're on a multi-user system for instance so that might be that might be a reason to use it you know that's direct input into the process that isn't telegraphed um on as a uh, command line input or a, an environment variable. Exactly. My second package is um, called sf2lib uh, by Brad Howes. And this is not only a new package to me, but but the the, the the content or the the purpose of the package was also new to me. Um, so this is a package that uh, passes and renders sound fonts. Have you ever heard of sound fonts before? Sound fonts. Oh, is that like an accessibility feature where it has little? Oh no, I'm thinking of sparklines. That would be a great idea, but it's not that. No, <laughs> um, a, a sound font is a um, is is well, it's pretty much exactly what you uh, think it is. It is the equivalent of a font, but with um, musical or sound samples, any kind of sound samples. So it is a file format that holds both MIDI map information so the the midi notes mapping to certain sample files but also it it contains the sample files as well so for example you could um you could create a sound font of a uh, piano and have all the different recordings of all the keys at various different velocities and things like that and then distribute it as one file which is here is the piano sound font and people could uh, render that and, and play back the right samples at the right time based on midi input um so i love the package index because not only does it teach me about new packages, but it teach, teaches me about whole new things like this uh, because I hadn't come across sound fonts at all. Um, and um, it's based on a, a C++ library behind the scenes and the SF2 lib, uh, I believe, is is a uh, wrapper that supports iOS, macOS, tvOS. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not something I'm going to use in, in the next few weeks uh, or potentially ever, but I found it really interesting to learn about this. Nice, interesting. So, so, how would you actually use it? What's the? Is that to create those sound files, or what's the? What does the package? No, it's not to create them. It is to um, uh, passing and rendering of them. So, by rendering, I presume it means playback. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Okay. It does mention um, that it uh, depends on DSP and audio classes from an AUV three support package. So, I think there's almost certainly playback functionality right. in there. Yeah. All right, my third pick is called Swift Async Assert by Angu Software. Um, and this is a really nice convenience package when you're dealing with tests of async functions. Uh, because when you do that, you may have noticed that you, if, for instance, if you uh, try and write a test, XCT assert equals what you put in there can't be async because it doesn't have an async context. So you'd need to either grab the value first by you know running a let temp variable equals uh, await on your thing and then stick it in there 
um, that's obviously a, a workaround, or you'd you'd have to write your own wrapper uh, function that that does that for you, which which isn't hard, obviously. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's an easy thing to add. We've actually we've done that in a couple of cases in the package index and our tests. This nice little library does that for you. It it packages all those up, does that for all the XCT assert variants out there, you know, so you don't need to cover them all yourself or start with a few and then always be annoyed when a new one pops up that you haven't covered yet because that's the situation we are in. <laughs> we got a, a fair few, but uh, as soon as we need XCT assert equals with accuracy we'll uh, we'll have to go back and add that one right so it's it's really sure. nice to have this all, all packaged up and it's it's one of those packages that you can that's easy to adopt right because this you can do yourself easily or, or add it if if upstream there's it's missing you can open a pull request and add it i love the, these kinds of packages they're easy to depend on because it's something you can absolutely do yourself but it's a time saver that you don't have to um so yeah, Swift Async Assert by Angu Software. That's great. Um, my final package this week is uh, a package called Bezel Kit by Mark Battistella. And I love how minimal this package is. Um, it probably has more than this, but the main functionality of this package is one method. <laughs> and it's not even an instance method, it's a static method. So how good is that, right? <laughs> so what does it do? It um, tells you how big and how what shape the corners are on whatever device it is running on. So for example, on an iPhone, you have the um, rounded corners at the screen edge because none of the corners are square on the iPhone screen. And they're not even standard corners, they're um, squircle corners. So mm. they're, I forget the, the mathematical <laughs> name, but it's, it's, a, it's a slightly- Squircle. It's, a, it's not a perfect, uh, it's a squircle. Yeah, exactly, it's a squircle. Um, and, the purpose of this package is that if you have some UI in your application that wants to inset from the edge of the screen by a certain amount, it's quite difficult to get the radius of your squircles mm. to match the <laughs> radius of the device squircles. Because not only do you need to make it a squircle, which of course there are APIs to do that, but as you inset from the edge, the size of your corner radius is going to be different than the size of the corner radius on the device because you're inset like it's not it's not the same size um and so what this will do is it will tell you um it will basically give you the device bezel size and uh make it really easy for you to draw perfect squircles inside the inset of whatever device it is you're on. Nice. Yeah, the README, I'm just looking at it, lays that out nicely and gives examples what that looks like. Has a nice... Better than yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it has the advantage of being able to show a picture, which you you kind of have to try and paint with your words. But yeah, it looks really nice. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, you, you probably don't know, if does it, does it have to sort of hard code and figure this out so if if something new came out this september with a new geometry does it actually use um the uh, you know the uh, insets that it knows about to do that automatically or would it need to it's a really great question 
ah, well, maybe maybe we'll know by next time. So that's uh, Bezel Kit by Mark um, Battistella. There we go. So um, we will be back in two weeks or potentially next week if the recording has failed again. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> we will we will find out in about five minutes whether we'll be back next yeah, week or God, the week after. Uh, but hopefully with with a perfect recording, we'll be back in two weeks' time to talk more packages and we will see you then. I, I hope so much that we'll, we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Me too. <laughs> Bye-bye.